1: We thank you for joining us this evening.
0: Despite what many people imagine and what is being advertised by our criminal justice officials, there are many wrongfully convicted people who populate North Carolina's prison system. This is a national problem and North Carolina is one of the biggest violators. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, There have been close to 3,400 exonerations of innocent people in the United States since 1989. These exonerations across the country have grown by more than 70% since 2017 and is likely to increase in the coming years. To our dismay, many of these exonerations have occurred in North Carolina and they have cost the state millions of dollars. Just last week, we learned of a settlement and award of $25 million for the wrongful wrongful conviction of Ronnie Long, who spent 44 years in prison for a rape that he did not commit. Prior to this settlement and an apology from the town of Concord, Leon Brown and Henry McCullough were awarded $75 million by a federal jury for their wrongful convictions after spending 31 years in prison for a rape and murder that they did not commit. These two cases are just the most recent examples of the results of hard work by attorneys, law professors, and involved students who spent countless hours investigating and preparing these cases for litigation. The Ronnie Long case was shepherded by the Duke University Law School's Wrongful Conviction Clinic, which was organized in 2007 by Professor James Coleman and Teresa Newman. The Wrongful Conviction Clinic followed their creation of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence in 21, which occurred in conjunction with the UNC Chapel Hill School of Law. Professor Coleman remains with the clinic and has been joined by Professor Jamie Lau following Professor Newman's retirement. Tonight, we will discuss wrongful convictions in North Carolina and the details of the Ronnie Long case. So joining us for this discussion are none other than Professor James Coleman, who is the uh, director of the uh, Wrongful Conviction Clinic, and Jamie Lau who is the deputy director of that center. So, uh, first of all, congratulations to uh, both of you for this uh, outstanding victory. Uh, What do you have to say about
2: it? You're right, it was outstanding.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you for having us first and foremost. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity to talk about not just Ronnie's case, but wrongful convictions more broadly in North Carolina. Um, this, this was a big victory uh, for Ronnie, in part, I mean, the $25 million is a substantial amount, uh, but the apology from the city of Concord uh, was as important to him um, as whatever monetary amount he was going to get in a settlement. It was something he insisted upon and something that was incredibly meaningful to him Given all they went through and 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 more importantly, all that his family went through um during his forty-four years of wrongful incarceration.
0: Yeah. And 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 that was a big piece of that, which we're gonna get back to in a moment. But starting us off, uh, because you you all are the uh, are the shepherds in this field. Uh in uh in North Carolina, following the uh work of uh, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield that uh uh, C- uh Cardoza uh, law school so Jim let me just start with you how, how did you get involved uh, initially in this wrongful conviction uh area of the law?
2: Well uh, when when I came to the law school, uh, students uh, basically identified me as gonna as being a soft touch. Uh, that uh, there was something they wanted to get involved in, they figured that Teresa and I would uh, help them. So, uh, Teresa and I went up to New York uh, and had a meeting with uh, Barry uh, Sheck and uh, Peter uh, Newfield uh, about uh, starting a uh, innocence project here in North Carolina. And we were joined by are Rich Rosen at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And the two schools uh, decided to uh, start a project that uh, at first was just intended to be a volunteer organization for students uh, uh, advised by the professors. Uh, But eventually uh, at Duke, Charissa and I turned our program into a, a wrongful convictions clinic Uh, which is a course for which students uh, get credit.
0: Okay. And uh, Jamie,
3: what about you? I would say I'm a bit of an accidental post-conviction attorney. Um, (laughs) Teresa (laughs) Newman used to always remind me uh, while she was still working for the clinic that I never took the clinic myself as a law student because I graduated from Duke Law School in 2009. And she always held that against me. Um, After... (laughs) After my graduation, uh, I ended up taking a position at the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission, uh, which is the only state agency in the country dedicated to investigating um, claims of innocence from people who are incarcerated here in North Carolina. Um, Through my work there, a few individuals were exonerated um, on cases that I had been assigned to. Um, Then Jim and Teresa came calling and asked if i would be interested in moving over to duke and helping them with the clinic and uh, i was excited about that opportunity obviously i'd been a student there um so i then went and joined uh, jim and teresa as a supervising attorney for the wrongful convictions clinic um in july of 2012 and been doing the work ever since you know i i i, I ventured into this field many, many
0: years ago uh with the uh Wilmington 10. Yeah. Uh so that's ancient history uh now, but uh, I certainly admire those of you who venture into this uh, realm of work because it's difficult. Uh yeah. it's, it's not uh, a, a simple thing uh to uh to, to do. Uh but let me just say how how did you, you know, uh Jim, you you talk about students came to you to push you and uh, uh, Teresa into working with them on wrongful convictions. where Where did this interest and this uh, inspiration uh, come from for students to want to spearhead something like this?
2: Well, th- there there have been articles uh, had been articles written about what Barry and uh, Peter were doing uh, nationally with DNA, Uh, and we had a a prisoner's legal rights program here that was also a student-run organization, but they wanted to do something more than that. Uh, And so when we got the invitation, actually, they got the invitation uh, to go to New York uh, to hear a pitch from the Innocence Project there, uh, we agreed to do it. And, you know, I had been doing death penalty I work uh, up to that point, Uh, but North Carolina was kind of easing out of execution, so I had time to do other things. Um, And, uh, you know, as soon as we got involved in uh, looking at cases, uh, I was hooked. One of the things that's different about our clinic uh, compared to the Innocence Project in New York is that uh, we are primarily non-DNA cases. Uh, In other words, uh, not by choice, but it's just simply that, uh, you know, anybody who has a DNA, DNA case uh, will try to get the uh, uh, National Innocence Project to take it. Uh, so most of our cases are non-DNA, uh, which means that it's based on uh, reinvestigating cases, which I think is e- even more difficult than the cases where y- you have you have DNA.
0: Well, can you kind of talk about uh, the the mechanics of uh, pulling together uh, a case like this, the investigative part of it, the contact with the uh, person who claims to be actually uh, innocent or wrongfully uh, convicted? And I know that within the North Carolina uh, prison system of the some Thirty thousand people who are incarcerated now, roughly twenty-nine thousand five hundred declare that they are wrongfully uh uh convicted. So uh Jamie, can you talk about how you separate out the wheat from the shaft, how you figure out which which cases you ought to pursue.
3: Sure. Um there's first of all, twenty-nine thousand five hundred. Um we get about two hundred letters annually from the thirty thousand people who are incarcerated um in north carolina so we we get a good number of claims each year that people are um, in fact innocent uh, who are incarcerated the the first step is reviewing those letters that we receive um, we got to decide whether or not it's a case that there's a potential reinvestigation to be had that would establish the person's innocence um, some of the examples of cases we might screen out are a case where somebody's claiming lesser culpability they were involved in an argument, Um, the person who was with them then jumped in to the fray um, causing the harm that the person claiming innocence to us was incarcerated for. Uh, There's just no way we can help you out of that situation. Um, So we get a lot of these um, claims of people saying that they had lesser culpability for the crime that they're actually incarcerated for, and we're looking for cases of actual innocence. So among those letters, we sort of initially screen out uh, just the letters we receive of people saying, I was wrongfully accused of this. I had no involvement in the crime. I wasn't around when the crime was occurring uh, because if we potentially establish what they're telling us to be true, uh, then we will potentially pursue relief for that person in court. Um, Once we screen those cases out where people are, in fact, claiming actual innocence, uh, we start doing an initial review of publicly available case materials. Perhaps it's the Court of Appeals decision, news articles. We try to get a sense of what case was presented against that person, not just what the person themselves is telling us, Um, because sometimes there's pretty significant facts that are left out of the letters uh, that we receive. So after reviewing those publicly available, materials more cases are screened out and eventually we're left with the cases that we believe uh, an investigation may establish that the person was in fact innocent uh, that's not always the case I mean sometimes we begin uh, initial investigation of the case after consulting with the individual uh, and it just doesn't appear that there would be any pathway where we could establish that the person is in fact innocent so we then end up having to drop those cases. And then it comes down to a kind of set of cases where we believe that um, the investigation is providing valuable information. We obtain all the records from the prosecution, law enforcement, and if we believe there are a viable claim after that investigation, after obtaining those records, ultimately we file um, what is known as a motion for appropriate relief here in North Carolina, which is the post-conviction review motion uh, seeking to have the conviction vacated. Mm-hmm.
1: And and so you mentioned that you receive about 200 letters annually. And I, and I suspect it varies from year to year. Um, how many cases does the clinic typically handle? So out of those 200, how many of them would result in cases that the clinic would ultimately take? At any given
3: time, the clinic has about five to 10 cases actively in litigation. We have another um, probably 10 to 20 cases where we're investigating, screening, trying to make the determination whether litigation is warranted. We have, I can't, it, it would be hard to put a number on, but we have several cases that have met all that initial Review criteria that are queued up as potential cases um, to begin investigating in the future. So, at any given time, there are probably about, and Jim, you can correct me if you think I'm, I'm being inaccurate. There are probably about 50 cases that are either queued up or 10 cases in litigation, and then another set where we're just investigating and trying to determine whether litigation is in fact. Feasible
2: in those cases, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think I think that's accurate. Uh, you know, and once a case is put into the clinic, uh, I it, it stays there. I uh, so you know we we don't drop it unless uh, we reach a point where uh, it no longer seems possible that we can find a route uh, to uh, proving the person's innocence. Uh, but the cases are at different stages, uh, you know. so some are being investigated, some are being litigated, some are uh, in state court, some are in federal court. Uh, and as a result of that, we're able to bring in new cases uh, each year uh, because the uh, cases that have been in the clinic are, are either dormant because nothing's happening in court or we're sort of in between uh, stages, and, uh, uh, you know, we have the capacity to take on a new case.
0: Can you kind of talk about, and, and I don't know if, if if this is a real distinction that you make uh, at the clinic, but uh, the difference between actual innocence and wrongful conviction?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when we screen cases, we're screening cases to identify those in which we think there's a possibility that the person seeking assistance is actually innocent, That is, had nothing to do with the crime. Uh, as we investigate, uh, it may not be possible to prove uh, actual innocence, but we uh, d- discover evidence that indicates that a person who likely is innocent uh, received an unfair trial in violation of the Constitution, that would be a wrongful conviction because it doesn't really depend on whether the person is uh, uh, innocent or not if he didn't receive a fair trial. So people who are wrongfully convicted, that's a much larger group of folks than people who are actually innocent in terms of what we're able to prove.
0: Okay. Uh, This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we have the the pleasure of uh, talking with Professor uh, James Coleman, uh, Professor uh, Jamie Lau, uh, both uh, with the uh, Duke University Law School Wrongful Conviction Clinic. And we're talking about wrongful convictions and uh, and moving into a discussion of the uh, Ronnie Long case, which resulted in a uh, settlement of $25 million for his having spent 44 years uh, in prison for a crime that uh, he did not uh, commit. But we're going to have to take our break uh, right now. I want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this discussion. So we'll be right back.
4: North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology, Law, and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
0: Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us. As we uh, continue this uh, discussion on uh, wrongful convictions with uh, Professor James Coleman, uh, Professor Jamie Lau from the uh, Duke University Law School Wrongful Conviction Clinic, and uh, they are fresh off of a uh, successful effort uh, to uh, free yet another uh, wrongfully convicted uh, or actually innocent person uh, from uh, the North Carolina prison system and an award, an astounding award of $25 million for the 44 years that uh, he spent uh, in uh, in prison. And of course, $25 million, as much as it is, does not replace 44 years, uh, but it is certainly a, um, a step in the right uh, direction for the person who was harmed. Uh, certainly a sad note for North Carolina and the uh, North Carolina uh, criminal recording, justice. Recording
1: recording in that, progress uh, it
0: has to be uh uh demeaned uh in uh in in this way. Uh let's kinda go to to, to, to Ronnie's uh, uh case. Uh uh Jim, uh how, how did how did y'all get in contact with uh with, with Ronnie Long and then uh what difficulties did you have uh, working with his case since it occurred uh, roughly, what, 45, 45 years ago?
2: Let, let me throw that one to Jamie because uh, he's much more well-versed in the facts uh, of the case than I am. Okay. Jamie?
3: Yeah, so we split the caseload and different attorneys supervised different cases. So I was the attorney supervising the Ronnie Long case, and, and we received the case, um, in 2015 we were actually contacted by supporters of ronnie and the initial uh, description of the case that we received is this case has had extensive litigation it's been in federal court its most recent trip to federal court um the case was dismissed as a result of it being a successive habeas petition filed in federal court um the rules of Uh, The Anti-terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act only allows an individual to bring a habeas corpus petition one time um, without prior authorization to raise a successive petition. So procedurally, there was a lot of barriers to litigating Ronnie's case. And that was the environment that we stepped into when we uh, began working with Mr. Long. I went to meet with Ronnie in prison, spoke with him about what had happened to him through the years, uh, learned quite a bit about his case from him. This was um, early on, and became myself convinced that he got a raw deal, was in fact innocent, and that we have to figure out everything we possibly can um, to overcome those procedural hurdles that we face to litigate the case. Um, I told him that I thought they may prove to be insurmountable, but we were going to give it, you know, our best effort to try uh, to demonstrate his innocence. What occurred in the case was in 1976, he was accused of raping a white woman in Concord, North Carolina. They collected forensic evidence from the scene where the sexual assault occurred um as one would expect the woman was brought to the hospital at the hospital that night they collected a sexual assault evidence kit or a rape kit um she provided a description of the person who had assaulted her um, notably that description described the person who assaulted her as a light-skinned or yellow black male um And she also described the person who assaulted her as wearing a black leather jacket. A Few weeks later, the law enforcement had no leagues in the case. Uh, They then see Ronnie, uh, an officer who had familiarity with who Ronnie was, Um, his family. They were a pretty solidly middle-class black family in Concord at the time. Ronnie was known by law enforcement not because he had been picked up by them, but he was um, someone that they thought uh, had too much lip. Whenever they came into contact with him, he needed to uh, tone it down because he understood that um, his family was, you know, a middle-class working family, and he just he had little tolerances, I think, how he would describe it when the officers in the town would. Um, would, would would mess with him and his friends and, and they knew that about Ronnie but they saw him wearing a black leather coat um, when they saw him in that black leather coat the officer who already uh, didn't like Ronnie decided he was going to pick him up for trespassing in the local park uh, the park was adjacent to his home they actually lived next to the park and he was cited for being in the park after hours um, then as a result of that um, arrest, he had to make an appearance in court. And this is where the misconduct really begins. They had a picture of Ronnie. They should could have shown the woman Ronnie's picture as of that moment, but instead they asked the woman who had been assaulted whether she would come to the courthouse and see if anybody there uh, max the description of the person who had assaulted her. Um, she was dressed in a disguise. Um, this is about three weeks. I think it was 17 days. So less than three weeks after, um, the assault had occurred, she was dressed in disguise, brought into the courtroom, asked to sit in the gallery of the courtroom while the two investigators winning sat in the jury box and told if she saw someone she thought, uh, fit the description of the person who had assaulted her to signal to them. Um, she sat in the courtroom, which uh, had, I believe it was about 60 people in it, only 12 of which um, were black individuals. Um, she sat in the courtroom with Ronnie within Ronnie's presence for over an hour and a half. Uh, he was called up for his case to be heard, which was dismissed that day because it was entirely fabricated and trumped up anyway. He was called up for his case to be heard. He was wearing his black leather jacket. She signaled to the officers that this is apparently the person. And from that moment on, he was the the prime suspect. And he was arrested later that day on the basis of the identification. Um, We learned a little bit more about the identification um, through the information that came out after he was arrested. The woman herself wasn't sure if she had been told the name Ronnie Long going into the courtroom. So if she was asked specifically to look for him, making it a highly suggestive um, identification. While she was in there for an hour and a half in his presence, she didn't identify him until he got up and she heard his name and he was wearing um, the black leather jacket. She also said during testimony, uh, the jury heard this, that Ronnie was the only one who really fit Even remotely to the description she provided. She said there were some black males with afros in the courtroom among those 12, some elderly black males among those 12. She described them as being slouched over. Um, I equate it to sort of the child's game guess who, right? You know, you can eliminate all the people, black males in the courtroom that have afros, you can eliminate the ones that don't fit the age. category. And ultimately, the only person in that courtroom that was even remotely close uh, to the description she had provided was, was Ronnie. There's one big problem, though. Ronnie is a decidedly dark-skinned black male, uh, but for whatever reason, that didn't make a difference um, to law enforcement. There was no physical evidence that ever connected him to the crime. The, Forensic evidence that was collected at the scene included uh, 40 fingerprints that they believed were probative of who had committed the assault. Um, hair that was described as African American or negroid hair, hair uh, under the parlance of the lab uh, that didn't was Ronnie's hair was excluded as matching that hair. He was excluded from all those fingerprints that were collected. That believed to be probative of the person who assaulted the woman. Uh, All of the forensic evidence was withheld from his defense team Mm -hmm. at the time of his trial. And in fact, the officers testified and lied, saying that there was no testing done on any of the forensic evidence that was collected at the scene, despite being in possession of reports from the state um, crime lab indicating that none of it. was associated with Long in any way, shape, or form. Those reports weren't discovered until post-conviction proceedings that occurred um, between 2005 and 2009 in state court, uh, where he was ultimately denied relief by the state court judge, arguing that um, the contents of those reports would have had no bearing on his guilt or innocence at the time of trial. Um, The judge also said that the officer's lies were I mean, he, he wouldn't even go as far as to say that the officer had actually lied about those reports. Uh, the state always maintained that the officer could have just been mistaken when testifying that none of this evidence the scene had in fact been uh, evaluating, subjected to forensic testing. And then the final thing I'll add is um, obviously, given the advent of DNA, of course, the uh, the rape kit or the sexual assault evidence kit could have been probative of who had Uh, assaulted her. And it may have, in fact, even been probative at the time because ABO blood typing was available and could have indicated that Ronnie wasn't the source of the materials collected in that kit. Shockingly, and and this this goes across the board for the forensic evidence, because it should be known that the forensic test results that were ultimately discovered, they were provided by the state crime lab. The sexual assault evidence kit that was collected, the record that it even existed was found at the hospital with the signature from the officer who took it from the doctor at the hospital. All of the records of the physical evidence in the case that was subjected to testing. Demonstrated that uh, Ronnie wasn't involved at all, it disappeared from the Concord Police Department's file. Those records came from other sources and to this day. There's no record in the Concord Police Department files of ever receiving the rape kit, of what ultimately happened to the rape kit. It was scrubbed entirely from those files. And there's testimony at the trial, or I'm sorry, there's testimony in those post-conviction proceedings from Jim Fuller, who was Ronnie's trial attorney, saying that they directly asked the prosecutor whether one of those kits had been collected and was told no. So the only reason we're aware that it was in fact collected and turned over to police is because the hospital's record keeping dating back to 1976 is better than that which law enforcement kept. Mm.
0: Well, that's 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 chilling. Uh, mm. And the sad thing is that it has happened uh, so many different times. Uh, and well, I guess the part of the efforts to change the rules of uh, criminal procedure Uh, in North Carolina to uh, open file uh, discovery uh, because that did not exist in 1976. Uh, Jim, you wanted to respond?
2: No, I I, I think your reaction to uh, Jamie's description of the case uh, is spot on. Uh, You know, we see this in case after case after case. Uh, We see indifference on the part of law enforcement officials. Uh, on the part of prosecutors, and sadly on the part of the Office of the Attorney General. I mean, you know, they will defend this kind of conduct uh, as long as they can, Uh, and then when they get to the point where the courts rule against them on procedural issues, you know, they'll throw in the towel and admit all along that this uh, person's constitutional rights have been violated by uh, what happened at the trial. that's what I think we have to change now is the indifference.
1: And, you know, um, Jamie, you kind of describing um, what took place during that original trial and and some of the post-conviction relief efforts, um, it, it sounds like it didn't take you very long to reach the conclusion, as you said, that he had gotten a, a, a raw deal. And so you mentioned that um, Duke's clinic was contacted in 2015. I I think what is most shocking for those that don't kind of practice in that space is that something that seems so obvious and this blatant indifference, as as you and James talk about, could be perpetrated for so long that that there that there would not have been. Um, times within the criminal legal system where this injustice would have not gone on, would have not been continued? Because I think that there are a lot of folks that don't realize how many innocent individuals have been wrongly convicted. Can you talk a little bit about what we as, um, well, I would say lay people don't kind of understand about the criminal legal system that allows this to happen. And Jamie, you've kind of already talked about that as you were sharing Ronnie Long's um, situation, but w- what else do people not understand um, that makes this possible and and more frequent than we would imagine?
2: And,
0: and why it takes so long?
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, there, there, there are two really important... Um, actors uh, in the criminal justice system, the prosecutor and the judge, uh, and there are rules that govern uh, what their obligations are, uh, that uh, are ignored uh, in cases of wrongful convictions. Uh, what happens is that the, the prosecutors uh, are set on trying to keep a person who has been convicted in prison. Uh, and they look for any way that they can do it. Uh, we we, you know, uh, we find it very difficult to get a prosecutor to focus on the facts at the beginning of a case. They will raise uh, procedural claims. We will litigate procedural claims. We litigate them in state court and then in federal court. And if we win, if we finally succeed uh, in getting beyond the, uh, the procedural claims, they then focus on the facts, and often when we get to that point, you know, they have to concede because, you know, the, the facts are, are pretty clear uh, that uh, the evidence against this person uh, was not sufficient. Uh, the judges uh, basically allow them to do this. Uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do uh, in the clinic is get judges to force the state to uh, respond to the facts early in a case, Uh, and we've not been successful so far, uh, but we will keep trying until, you know, that becomes a regular part of what happens in post-conviction litigation.
1: All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking this hour with the director and deputy director of the Duke University Law School Wrongful Conviction Clinic. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor, Professor James Coleman, who is the director and Professor Jamie Lau, who is the deputy director. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU's School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation, completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market-ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking this hour about the Ronnie Long wrongful conviction case. He was represented by attorneys and students from the Duke University School of Law wrongful conviction clinic. And we've been talking this hour with the director and deputy director of the clinic, Professor James Coleman, who is the director and Professor Jamie Lau, who is the deputy director. Um, So during the last segment, um, Jamie, you were able to give us um, kind of a breakdown of of Ronnie's case. And um, James, right before the break, you were talking about what you're focusing on or one of the things or some of the things that you're fo- focusing on to try to ensure that these wrongful convictions don't happen. And so um, encouraging or, or uh, trying to get judges to force the prosecutors to respond to the specific facts of the case early on. Jamie, can you talk about other changes that need to be made to the system in order to prevent these wrongful convictions?
3: The interesting thing with regard to North Carolina was um, we heard early on in the program about the 3,400 people who um, the National Registry of Exonerations indicates um, has been exonerated since I believe they started tracking in 1989 or 1988. Um, In North Carolina since 2006, I was actually on a plane um, earlier this week making notes and just started writing out all the wrongful convictions in the state uh, that I could think of. And I think the number I got up to is 26 people have been exonerated in North Carolina since 2006. So that's less mm-hmm. than 20 years. Um, and North Carolina had all these criminal justice reforms that went into place in 2004. Open file discovery was previously mentioned. Uh, That was in response to some high-profile capital cases and wrongful convictions that had occurred in the state Um, and the misconduct or misdeeds that were done resulting in uh, those changes in 2004. Um, It's time that we look towards other reforms to prevent this from happening because 26 is an entirely unacceptable number for a period of time that spans less than 20 years. Amongst the things that I would like to see, um, I would like to see, um, first of all, there's post-conviction discovery potentially available. Uh, We find resistance from prosecutors to providing that post-conviction discovery until after we file a MAR, a motion for appropriate relief, which is backwards. Uh, It needs to be clarified. that post-conviction attorneys are entitled to those materials prior to filing that motion for appropriate relief so they can raise all their claims in that um, post-conviction filing. I would like to see movement towards the attorney general's office having explicit authority to set aside convictions that it finds that there were constitutional violations below. Presently the viewpoint of the attorney general and you've seen this spoken about uh, by uh, Professor Coleman or James is that they defend that which occurs below in the trial court. Their obligation is to defend the state in these cases. I want it to be explicitly um, a part of their charge that in these cases where there's violations found after the fact that they have the authority to move to set aside those um, convictions. So we don't get into this prolonged litigation on these procedural basis when everybody's um, aware that the trial resulting in the conviction was fundamentally unfair. Uh, people point toward the jury and say, oh, the jury's decision um, has to be honored. But the jury, it's, it's this concept of garbage in, garbage out. How can you have trust in a conviction when the original evidence that was presented Uh, turns out to have been garbage because it was all manufactured contrived um, materials were hidden from the defense. So we need to um, make it easier for prosecutors to do the right thing, um, easier for prosecutors in the attorney general's office to do the right thing by making it explicit that part of their charge is to ensure um, that is to represent the state, but also to ensure that um wrongful convictions are identified and remedied when the facts uh illustrate that that's in fact the case because because in the ronnie long case as soon as we overcame the procedural hurdles et cetera, um we've seen this in another case of exoneration the charles ray Finch case the attorney general's office is quick to um move on once the facts uh once they're forced to address the facts because it's indisputable what happened in these cases after all these years of litigation
0: well, one, one question that that, that I have and, and something that I've not been able to determine yet is what happens to the perpetrators of this uh, misconduct that occurs uh, resulting in these uh, wrongful uh, convictions? The police officers, the uh, assistant uh, prosecutors, uh, and others who know uh, and uh, deliberately participate uh, in efforts that uh undermine the uh, uh the constitutional rights of uh of citizens in
2: the state well the uh the quick answer is I uh, often nothing uh and sometimes you know these are the same people who later in their careers become uh judges uh if, if they're mm-hmm. when the misconduct occurs um you know uh Prosecutors basically have immunity from uh, civil liability for what they do. Uh, And so the only way that uh, they can be held responsible is if the bar uh, is willing to, uh, you know, take disciplinary action against them, uh, and the bar usually is not. Um, And, you know, so I've always thought uh, that uh, one of the things we need uh, in the system is an office of professional responsibility or integrity that, that has the authority to investigate uh, misconduct by prosecutors uh, and discipline them uh, so that it becomes a matter of public record uh, as opposed to something that happens in some secret proceedings uh, uh, in the bar. Um,
1: Jamie, you mentioned the... Um... You know, weight given to the jury's determination. And in, in Bronny's case, of course, the eyewitness testimony um, played very heavy, of course, uh, in the evidence against him. And you've already kind of laid out how that was, you know, how that came about. Can you talk about the challenges associated with eyewitness testimony? Because we know that jurors place a lot of emphasis if the victim says, this is the person who committed the crime.
3: Yeah, we, we know that there's a lot of weight given to identification testimony generally. We also know through years of social science research that high, eyewitness identifications in particular is highly fallible for numerous reasons, right? I mean, there's this, um impact of stress at the time that somebody's um you know under be, being the victim of a crime and that stress uh, impedes our ability to accurately accurately recall later um you know some of the features of the person who is attacking um once a, a victim in a particular case uh the idea being you're so focused at that moment on survival or, just aiming the event itself, that it becomes, um, you know, it, it's sort of interfering with your ability to really encode, um, you know, the features that would later allow you to uh, potentially identify someone. And the passage of time also impedes that. So, here, as I mentioned, it was, I believe, 17 days after the assault occurred. Um, there's also a lot of research that saying that memory itself is malleable. Um, The Innocence Project filed a brief a amicus brief in Ronnie's case when it was in front of the Fourth Circuit um, discussing how uh, research has shown that uh, people who uh, undergo a stressful event can be led to believe things that are just demonstrably not true. Change the description from someone not wearing a hat to wearing a hat because they've heard it enough um, that suddenly that becomes incorporated as part of the description. So, there are a lot of problematic aspects with eyewitness identification um, itself. Here, I mean, I think it's particularly relevant. Um, Imagine the stress that one would feel to make an identification to end the traumatic event of being placed in a costume or a disguise, put in a courtroom, told you're potentially sitting in the presence of your attacker, and we're going to have you sit there until you signal to us. Um, one way or another, whether or not you see the person, and having sat there for over an hour and a half, uh, I imagine that the, um, the the victim in this case was um, very eager in those circumstances to end them by identifying someone. Um, and someone wearing a leather jacket would be a, a, a particular target. Now, some stakes have addressed this. Um, New Jersey being an example, Massachusetts, for example, um, by creating more or less a right for the defendant to present um, evidence demonstrating the fallibility of eyewitness identification testimony. Um, So the jury at least um, is informed about the problematic aspects about that when they're um, assessing the credibility of the testimony and the weight to give testimony presenting at a trial, presented at a trial. Um, such a right does not exist here in North Carolina. It would be up to the trial judge to determine whether or not uh, the expert being offered to potentially testify um, would be able to testify in a manner that the judge believed would be helpful to the jury in assessing the weight and the credibility of, to give the evidence. Um, but some states have addressed it head on by saying that this is problematic testimony. In North Carolina, we have taken steps through uh, reform of the criminal legal system. The Eyewitness Identification Reform Act has tried to address it at the front end by having police who are uh, putting people through identification procedures to to follow procedures that are known to enhance the reliability, but even those procedures are still highly valuable can result in misidentification very easily.
0: This, this is a, uh, a discussion that's sponsored by the law school. Uh, I don't know which one of you want to, to respond uh, to it, but can you describe the the, the work and role of students in uh, the uh, investigation since they were the ones that prompted uh, the creation of the clinic in the first place. What is it that uh, they do? What is it that they are empowered uh, to do and has the uh, inspiration uh, 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 evidenced by them uh, continued over all of these years with all of the cases that you're engaged in?
2: Well, we, we organized the clinic the way you would a small law firm uh, where Jamie and I, uh, uh, and a graduate fellow are the partners, uh, and then the students are assigned to cases, uh, that we supervise, uh, and that they work as, uh, as lawyers, uh, on the case under our supervision. They're, uh, in North Carolina, they're permitted to practice law as students. Uh, so, uh, they, they participate in everything that we do. Uh, you know, they uh, help to uh, prepare for depositions. So
3: hope we've lost, uh, we've lost Jim. Yeah. Uh, I think where he was going with that was, uh, you know, our students are involved in all aspects of the litigation. They, um, sometimes make arguments in court. They're deeply involved in the investigation. Um, we had a student, Ace Factor, who was uh, highly involved in Ronnie's case, for example. And uh, on Tuesday of last week when the settlement was announced, one of the first things Ronnie said was, you know, we need to bring Ace, who's practicing law in Houston, we need to bring Ace back to North Carolina and have a banquet or celebration. Um, <laughs> tell him I'll cover the flight. Uh, <laughs> Ronnie, Ronnie will cover anything now, right? now." <laughs> You know, he, he's excited about the, um, the, the settlement and the money he received as part of the settlement. Um, so the students are instrumental in our work. Um, in fact, Ace, one of the key things that he did in Ronnie's case um, that I always credit him for is, I talked about how you needed authorization to file the successive habeas petition um, in federal court. Um, Ace wrote the motion uh, for... Um, authorization from the fourth circuit that we filed. Um, He was the principal drafter of that motion uh, that got everything kicked off in federal court. Uh, The fourth circuit ultimately granted uh, authorization, which gave us the right to file back in the middle district and begin pursuing relief for Ronnie um, in the federal courts. And he was, I mean, he was the drafter, and then we reviewed and um, filed.
1: We have robust clinics here at NCCU School of Law and, and we know how important they are for students uh, development and growth and understanding of the legal system. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the students say having participated in, in this, especially this particular clinic which they're able to see um, one, the realities of the criminal legal system and and the work that, um, dedicated lawyers can really do to, to transform um, people's lives who have been treated unjustly?
3: Our students almost universally always say that it's amongst the uh, most important things that they participate in um, at the law school, uh, while they're a student at the law school. And there's, there's two reasons for that. Principally, it's the type of work that they're involved in The ability, seeing the ability and the work that goes into correcting an injustice and being a part, um, if you're fortunate enough to um, work on a case where the client is ultimately exonerated, being a part of that effort uh, to find. I can't say to find justice in a case because there's no way for there to be justice in a case where somebody was wrongly incarcerated for 44 years. Right. Mm -hmm. But to move towards resolution of an injustice. Um, that's deeply meaningful for students. And they often say it's amongst the highlights of their law school career. And then we also hear from them, they go off and um, they practice in their, their their you know New York law firms, and come back talking about how well-prepared they feel from their clinical experience uh, to practice in the firms that they're practicing in. Um, and I think that's universal across clinics, at NCCU, at Carolina, at Duke, Students who are participating in clinical education are going out there and they have a leg up on their peers with regards to their ability to contribute and to contribute early on in their careers. And we hear that time and time again from the students who work with us.
1: Well, we are out of time, but we want to thank our guests. Professor James Coleman and Professor Jamie Lau, who are the Director and Deputy Director of the Duke University School of Law Wrongful Conviction Clinic. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the great work that you're doing with the clinic. And we'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show, that you've learned something, and that you'll share this show and the information with your family and friends. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at review at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.